following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Well, I'm very privileged to speak with you all tonight. Thank you for coming. Uh, when Mark called, he asked if I could talk, would do a talk. And I said, okay. We exchanged pleasantries. And then before the conversation ended, he said, well, I need to know what the title of your talk is going to be. And, and they do, you know, to get it up on their, on their uh, internet stuff. And so I said the first thing that came into my mind, why practice? And uh, I think that's an old Zen thing. And then I said, but Mark, it's important. Don't have a question mark. I don't intend this to be a question. And he said, okay. And when I hung up, you know, I thought, what kind of a guy would say the title of a talk is why practice and it's not a question. And uh, anyway, the, um, the, the topic of the talk has, has morphed a little bit in my mind. Uh, rather than talk about a question, I want to talk about a matter related to practice that has uh, uh, not troubled me, but, you know, it's, I guess it has been kind of a question for me how to work with it on and off over the years, and, and maybe it is for you, and this is what I want to explore tonight, and that's wholehearted practice. And, you know, the term wholehearted practice is easy to understand, you know, it's a workable concept, and I can say, yeah, that's, that's great. And um, But there's uh, more to it than that. So just to begin, I wanted to read an excerpt from uh, Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind and the Way, uh, that I think is in point. It's from the chapter themes for daily practice so far so good and this section is called practicing meditation it's pages 134 and 135 sometimes people see the practice of meditation as something that's just going to add another responsibility they have to take on in an already busy active life but instead of looking at it as an added task, you can take a different attitude. Attitude is something you can change. Underline that one. As long as you think meditation is something that you have to do, it becomes another duty added to your already uh, busy day. It's something you should be doing. But you don't have time to because you're already overworked. Now, if you can just change the attitude, 
you may be able to decide that meditation is as important as getting rest at night or having something to eat during the day. In fact, he says, meditation is the most important thing in the long run, even though at times it can seem like the least important. It's important because it allows you an opportunity to have a rest from all the burdensome duties and responsibilities that you have. It allows you to let go of things, to take time out during the day to just stop and watch yourself. It helps you to observe the obsessions you might be feeling rather than being absorbed in them. Meditation, if done correctly, helps you to stop following these mental conditions and to begin noticing them. It allows you to let them be as they are, to let go of them. When this happens, meditation becomes something you can look forward to, like a good meal. And I'd like to add not only do I think it's important, but it's an urgent practice. And if there's time, I might get to that later on. But what, what he's describing in that little passage, what John Samedo is describing, is kind of what I think of as pointing at what practicing wholeheartedly can be rather than, as it often is for me, just putting in time on the cushion. So now I ask you, what does your practice mean to you? Is it important to you? Has it become something you look forward to? We each have our own story as how we came to meditation practice, and we each have our own answer as to what practice means to us. Perhaps, like me, some of you have developed habits in which we are often caught in the hindrances to practice. I'd like to share some thoughts and experiences that might help restore a vigorous practice in the event event you are caught up in some hindrances. And I want to begin with a book of uh, Shohaku Akamura, in which he discusses his experiences in practice. Uh, This is a fairly new book. It was published last year called called Realizing Genjo Koen. And Shohaku is a Japanese Zen priest uh, born in Japan. Uh, And he he came to Minnesota in 1993 uh, to fulfill fulfill a pledge he had made to Katagiri, the founder of the uh, Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, that when Katagiri died, um, Shohaku would come and uh, 
lead the center for three years until the center had time to find a full-time um, person to take over. He did that, and then after about three years, he went to work for the Soto Zen uh, Center as coordinator in the United States out, uh, out on the West Coast. And then when the time was right, he uh, established his own center in Bloomington, Indiana. He's written many books, but as he told me, the other ones were all translations. And this is a book of commentaries. And so it's, uh, for me, it's something special. And I've grouped the, the, the parts of the book that I want to talk about into four groups. Uh, the first having to do with finding meaning finding a place, finding a path. Uh, the second um, part, which is sometimes difficult in establishing a wholehearted practice, is the dichotomy between um, individuality and um, the interconnectedness, independent origination. So self and no self. And the third part, probably is my favorite, is um, intimacy and the intellect and practice. And the fourth is more of a Zen saying than um, what we have is called vow and repentance. And, and you know, you've heard Mark say, uh, you know, to look at your intentions for practice and returning to your intention. So I think that's what vow and repentance means similar to. Okay, here's my intention for practice, and then when I go off on some other path, I return to that intention. So let me begin uh, with finding meaning on the path. Oh yeah, this, uh, this begins with uh, Shohaku as a high school student in Japan. And I believe a very traumatic event occurred in his life at that time. And, and so he was trying to find the meaning of life as a teenager. And he, he read books on religion and philosophy. I don't think he was raised as a Buddhist, but I may be wrong in that. But anyway, so he went through this search of uh, because of what had happened is to try to find meaning. And he says, I became nihilistic and completely lost. You know, and that's a tough place to be. And I think many of us have been there from time to time. And, but then I think a friend introduced him to Yuchi Ami Roshi, who was a teacher at Antaji, a temple in Japan. And he, he began to study Buddhism and became Yuchinyami's disciple. He says, although I had read about many spiritual teachers who claimed to teach the truth, Yuchinyami Roshi was the first person I met who actually lived according to the truth. After practicing with my teacher for some time, I found that meaning is created in our lives when we find our place and path and begin to do something 
Until that moment, there is no, quote, ready-made, unquote, meaning or purpose to our lives. When I found myself as a student in the lineage of Uchiyami and Sawaki, life became meaningful and precious to me. A practice is not a concept or philosophical idea. It is actual practicing using one's body and mind. Before I began walking this path, absolutely no path existed for me. So, you know, I think that's really important. not a philosophical idea. It's something you make your own. He was looking for meaning. You know, it's something out there. And when he found a, a path, uh, then he found meaning. When we give all our attention and energy to the task or practice before us, we can truly penetrate it. We work on the practice, study it, experiment with it, and care for it. We do this over and over again with whatever we encounter, one thing at a time each time. When we practice whatever role we are in sincerely, we penetrate that role. When we make a mistake, we penetrate that mistake and learn from it then our mistakes become great teachers for us. Our place and path are nothing other than ourselves. You know, we learn from our mistakes. Um, before I read that, I've, I've said many times, um, the things that I value most in my life are things I learn from doing wrong, doing them wrong, uh, kind of by trial and error, making a mistake, and then, uh, oh, and th that's how I discovered what I thought. The second uh, part, I said, was dichotomy of individual responsibility and non-self. Uh, and this is tricky. That's always been a tricky question for me intellectually, you know. Um, self and non-self kind of sound like two opposite things. Let's see what I had here. We cannot live separately from the world. For us, this world is our life. Since we are one with the world, and supported by all things as a part of the network of interdependent origination, we must take care of this world that includes both self and others. Yet we must ask ourselves, how can we live our lives with this magnanimous view of the self, others, and the world? Life, or the natural universal life force, must be expressed 
as an individual being in order to manifest. Otherwise, life is just an abstract concept. Without the particular body, mind, and activity of a living being, no matter how weak, deluded, or self-centered, there is no way. There is no other way for life to manifest itself. You know that's pretty sweet. And then he has another thing to say that might be helpful. In my case, for instance, Shohaku does not exist as a fixed entity, but Shohaku is nevertheless living as Shohaku, and Shohaku needs to take responsibility for what Shohaku does. When it was my job to cook for the monks at Antaji, for example, on retreat, you know, we have cooks on our retreats, and that was my job. My practice was to carefully plan the meals, obtain the food, and cook the food. Even though my practice could manifest only in interconnection with all beings, and my cooking was actually only a tiny part of the process of bringing food to the community, I had to take full responsibility for my job. If I behaved carelessly, I could ruin the meal I was preparing. Although my cooking practice was the practice of the community and the practice of all beings, it was also my practice, and I had to carry it out with care and responsibility. This integration of totality and individuality is the way we actually live and the reasons and the reason we must practice. This integration of totality and individuality is the way we actually live and the reason we must practice. And I think that type of practice cuts through what I had thought was a dichotomy between self and non-self. On the third grouping, I call intimacy and intellect. This has a nice image in it. The, origi the original word, Japanese word, translated as study means to get accustomed to, to become familiar with, to get used to, or become intimate with. <coughs> so study refers to more than simply the intellectual study of something. Uh, the Chinese character for this word, the upper part of this kanji, is a symbol for the wings of a bird. And the lower part means self. So study means to study something in the way a baby bird 
studies flying with its parents. From birth, a baby bird possesses a potential to fly, but it must watch its parents to learn how to actually perform the action of flying. The, ba the baby watches and tries again and again until finally it can fly like its parents. This is the original meaning of to study. In the Genjo Cohen phrase, to study the self. This type of study is not simply an intellectual study, although, of course, human beings do use the intellect in the process of learning. But the accumulation of knowledge alone is not enough to allow us to learn to fly. When we study the self in this way, we cannot see ourselves as the object of study. We must rather live out ourselves. We must practice with our entire body and mind. And intellectual investigation, though important, is only a small part of this study. And, and those uh, two senses, to me, uh, I, I think is intimacy. The same way as a baby bird is intimate with his parent. When we study the self in this way, we cannot see ourselves as the object of study. We must rather live out ourselves. We must practice with our entire body and mind. Um, and I know you know that's true about the birds, and uh, because I know it's true for each one of you. Uh, and before I ever got mixed up with Buddhism, uh, I came across this book by Tim Galway, who was a teaching tennis pro called The Inner Game. And he had in, in the book something I had never thought of. He said uh, how, how a baby uh, learns to walk. An infant. And he says the infant learns to walk by watching its siblings or his parents walk and you know my kids did that and they pull themselves up on some furniture and toddle and fall down and 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 but what Galway pointed out is he says they learn to do this before they learn to talk and that's very important he says can you imagine what it would be like if you tried to learn to walk and you already thought in concepts and we're talking and had words and a vocabulary, and you had parents saying, okay, now, Craig, stand up on both feet. Now now start to shift your weight from your left foot to your right. No, 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 not so fast. You know, I, I don't think you would ever learn to walk that way. And, and, and these baby birds, uh, Alice, my wife, likes to go to the bird sanctuary, and, she, and a few weeks ago she found a great horned owl nest two big-eyed little babies peeping out. And then one day she went, there was only one, and apparently it had tried to fly and fell, but it, one of its parents got it over to another tree. So one parent was with one, and one parent was with the other. And I understand now they've flown away. So that's very intimate. And as, as far as us here at Common Ground, to to learn to practice, we're fortunate we have Mark here. So if, I think if you want to 
learn wholehearted practice, maybe just to look at him and try to figure out what he does. But you got to do it your own way. The last part is uh, what in the Zen practice is called vow and repentance. I put down beginning anew, cutting some slack, and endless practice. Many times in my practice, I find myself just putting in my time, nothing more, waiting for the bell to sound. I don't suppose I'm the only one, I don't know. I'm not proud to admit that. More recently, I picked up on Cabot Zinn's instruction. I took the course here on the mindfulness-based stress reduction. And he repeatedly kept keep saying, as, as best you can, you know. I really like that approach, cutting myself some slack, uh, doing the best I can. I don't have to be so rigid. I get a sense of relief it relieves me of my habitual striving for protection which is self-centered and harmful trying to be perfect on the other hand if i slack off too much which i'm somewhat prone to do i must remember that doing the best i can is very demanding isn't it We are fortunate to know that our practice doesn't have to meet any judgmental standards of perfection. Rather, as best we can, we simply do as best we can, whether in sitting practice or our practice of life. About to do our best as many times as it takes. I have just a little bit to read. From here, I've been trying to wash out the Zen terms and substitute the Pasana terms as best I can. <laughs> uh, well, practice is an ongoing activity in which we continue to deepen and broaden our understanding day by day, moment by moment. Enlightenment is a vital, a vital life activity that we must nurture, just as we must nurture our bodies. To stay alive, we must digest the food we have eaten every day and breathe moment by moment. In the same way, to manifest an awakening, we must continually return to awakening day after day, moment by moment. When we begin to practice with our wholehearted intentions, sooner or later, we will see incompleteness of our practice or notice that we have deviated from our intentions. Just as we return to our posture and sitting practice, we practice repentance by returning to the path of our intentions. 
whether in the meditation hall or going about our daily routine. Moment by moment, we simply return to awakening and genuine practice. We must do this over and over again. Our practice is endless. Humans usually think of themselves as individual, separate from other beings and the world. And we even seem to believe that we are the center of the world and the owners of all it contains. We compartmentalize. We fabricate a wall between ourselves and what's outside of us. No matter how we compartmentalize, a self-centered attitude toward the world in our own lives does not, uh, this is a exact term, make the world world turn into gold or transform our, transform our lives into nourishing cream. Our sitting practice enables us to reverse this fundamentally upside-down view of the self and the world and our intentions then become the guidelines for a life lived together with all being. So by, by practicing as best we can, we can reverse this self-centered view that we might otherwise have. And our intentions become the guidelines for a life lived together with all beings. Uh, to close this talk, I'd like to share a poem which captures eloquently what I've been trying to say so laboriously. And this, this poem has another beautiful image of intimacy in it. It's from a collection called Butterfly Dreams by Riken. Without intending it, the flower attracts the butterfly. Without intending it, the butterfly seeks out the flower. When the flower opens, the butterfly comes. When the butterfly comes, the flower opens. I'm the same. I may not know other people, and they may not know me. But without knowing one another, we naturally follow the universal law. That's a nice image to let go of the words this talk with. So now we have time for discussions, comments. Or more.
own meditation. Yes. Uh, I guess uh, one thing that, that I, is striking me in my practice is uh, how much choice I do have. Uh, it seems interesting that uh, part of our practice is to really receive the moment, uh, the present moment experience uh, without judgment. So just allowing things to be as they are. Um, and yet in that practice, uh, like you first uh, started out by saying, or, or the reading was choosing your attitude, and um, and then also the intention uh, that we can choose our intention in the moment. And these things, choosing our attitude, choosing our intention, you know, kind of, then then kind of uh, can lead us to this place where uh, 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 like uh, what was that last poem that the flower uh, doesn't intend. To open, yeah, I just sort of feeling that paradox. Without intending it, when the flower opens, the butterfly comes, something like that. And so then we get to this place. Maybe I don't know. I'm only imagining of. Uh, I just kind of imagine this sort of deep, deeper relaxation where the the striving ends, and uh, in some ways we there's no self left to to make intentions or to to try, but uh, just sort of noticing some of those paradoxes between having intention uh, and then uh, without intention, there's a life without intention, things happening uh, naturally, natural law, living within that without striving, and and the sort of uh, practicing, not controlling, not intervening, not pushing, not pulling with experience. And also seeing how the way we relate to each moment, each mind moment, we've got a lot of choice there. You know, what's the, the attitude and or the intention we bring to the moment. Yeah, well, as I understand mindfulness, uh, the intention is just to observe, you know, to um to observe what's going on with him. And uh, then in that little blurb that I recited from the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the qualities of how of observing that, a diligent or ardent, uh, clear understanding, mindfully, You know, uh, I don't know. For uh, for me, I get caught up in distaste of the world in, in my practice. I get caught up in cravings for things of the world, and and so um, uh, you know, we have a uh, and. Perhaps as my practice deepens, um, that'll be less frequent.
I guess. Um, and and then, you know, when I'm doing my other roles, when all of us are doing our roles, can we bring that same attitude when we're you know, they're blowing our horn at somebody or somebody's blowing their horn at us, you know? I mean, that's kind of where the rubber hits the road is how, how do we, can we manifest this in our everyday life? And, and, and uh, you know, this vow and repentance idea, this remembering our intention and uh, how we want to conduct ourselves, how we want to live, and coming back to that. And I think that's what the the wholeheartedness of practice will give, give us. my life when I was an undergraduate student. I had to, I was an engineering student and had a certain amount of study to do. And, and then I took that on as a father, husband, practicing attorney. You know, and, and, and you lose that intimacy as you, as you compartmentalize. And, and that's what I liked in this one reading about the integration and, uh, of the self and the non-self. So, and, uh, you know, maybe as that becomes more integrated, that it won't be the stupid job, you know. <laughs> I, I, oh, one time I, Competitor and this fellow wanted to crowd in ahead of me, and I was trying to keep him out. Finally, around this one right uh, light, he on a turn, he kind of did a foolish thing, but he got ahead of me. But he had gone to all the trouble, and I really appreciated that. He pulled the switch, and it uh, uh, 
a blind came down in his back window giving me the finger. <laughs> and, and I just thought, anybody that goes that much trouble must really enjoy it. <laughs> I, I like driving better now when I'm not competitive. You know, like coming here tonight, uh, I can see a, a big line of cars over by uh, many uh, on Excelsior Boulevard coming here, and so I, I came an alternate route. Uh, there was time to get here. It was kind of fun. I turned on some music, and then I turned it off. I, I liked driving quieter, better. Thank you for, for your teachings tonight. Okay. I, I have a question about your practice. Yeah, let's see. I said comments. <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I send you the questions? <laughs> Yeah, of course, Bonnie, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know if any Zen practitioners would claim me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'll be happy to answer that question. It's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I, I had one Zen teacher for a while, and I decided he wasn't the guy. And it was about that time I found, I saw this poster that Shohaku was at the, at the Zen Center. And I liked the looks of him in the picture. And I went over there, and it was kind of love at first sight. And, uh, and he was there three years. And then he left. I mean, he didn't like it. Well, he, he left because of a different style of practice than what he was used to. And uh, so then I was on my own again. And there were a few of us, I think about five or six, who tried to form a sitting group you know, to meet once every couple of weeks and have lunch together and sit together. And, and that didn't carry through. And, you know, you really, I, I really need a community of people. And I've been to Common Ground a couple of times uh, um, for different things. And so I thought, well, I'll go back there. And uh, I went to a few times, and, uh, and I thought, well, Mark's a real guy, you know. And he still is, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't think of myself as as unlike. Uh, I think of myself as Thibodin-like. But then I may be wrong. Actually, nobody's claimed me here either.
Shohaku brought me this book. Actually, his wife came back uh, to visit friends when I was really ill. And uh, she gave me this book. And then, and I thought it was very kind, but I, I, I was getting treatments and I couldn't concentrate. And then he, he, he was here, visited me. And that's when he told me it was a book of commentaries. And it took a while before I was in a condition to read it again. But um, one thing, you know, uh, this is about wholehearted practice. He was visiting, I think he was staying with us one time. He was in town and, uh, at our house, and he was up and he saw my little office and where I had my cushions. Oh, Craig, he said, yes. He said, so you should sit every day. And I say, every day, Shahakasan? Oh, yes, yes. Very, very important. Sit every day. Even on Sunday, Shahakasan? Oh, no, no. You don't have to sit on Sunday. <laughs> he knew he needed to cut me a little slack, I think. You know. You what? Oh, opening? I'm opening my eyes to see what time it is. Oh, yeah. And it is, it has, been, or it has become kind of a chore. It's exactly yeah. like you were saying. Yeah. The trouble is, I mean, I can, I know how valuable the practice is to me. Huh. And that's part of the chore. Because if, if I don't do this, I'm going to be really sorry. You know, everything's going to slip away. Yeah. And I'm not going to be okay. Yeah. Because that's part of the, that adds to the pressure of getting myself in there and sitting and doing it, you know. So I'm having, I'm wondering, I wonder how I can look at this so that I can get back to, you know, so it is not a chore, so it needs to be a chore. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, John Samuel suggested about changing your attitude. Did that? Did that resound in you in any way? It did. I'm not sure when I replaced my short attitude. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You know, one thing, and. and this sounds facetious, but I've actually done this because I was kind of in your place. I don't bring, other than when I'm, I have to talk or stuff, I don't bring up on retreat. And I don't have a watch with me unless I have to keep time for ringing the bell or something like that. Because, um, yeah, that, oh, that used to bother me a lot, especially on the longer retreats and you sit there and my knees would hurt and I thought, why doesn't he ring the bell? Oh, I bet he's falling asleep again, you know. And, and, and I, I don't you know, all the ugly things are there. And, um, I mean, you, you, you got it right. You got everything you need. <laughs> you got everything you need. And, and one of the passages I didn't read was, uh, nobody can sit for us. No 
Nobody can sit for us. Nobody can live our life for us. Um, and, and I mentioned as a very urgent practice. Not only is it an important practice, but it's an urgent practice. And one of the sweetest, most wonderful ways I heard about that was from Eric Stoll. Uh, he's a longtime member here, was on the founding boards, just board of, of uh, directors for Common Ground, and just volunteered a lot of talent and effort into taking on jobs at Common Ground. And he recently uh, died. His funeral was a couple weeks ago. And he had pancreatic cancer. And they had a get-together here, uh, I think about 10 days before he died, um, where we got together to talk about the three messengers of sickness, old age, and death. And, um, and so I, I qualified on the old age part, um, and uh, Eric was very sick. But what he said was, and I'd heard him talk about it somewhat facetiously before, and this was when he was, it was all he could do to get here that day. And um, he's very weak. And he said, he talked about the gift of cancer. And he said, I've, I've been in hospice care, you know, for the past few months. And he said, what that, the gift of that was, I was home, Kyoko, his wife, we were there, and we just spent all this time together. And we did all the things that we love, go out and, and take care of flowers. And I don't know if there are any flowers in, but those were things they loved, I know. And, and we got to spend this time together that, that we never spent together because we knew you know, this was coming to an end. And he says, it was a real gift that we got to do this together. <laughs> and and uh, so he, he was quite clear and he knew everything, what was going to happen, and yet he could see that as a gift. And, and so it's not only an important practice, it's an urgent practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.